This episode is sponsored by Anissa Gray's The Care and Feeding of Ravenously Hungry Girls. Vogue compares it to an American marriage and praises it as a, quote, disarmingly compelling story, conversational in tone and difficult in subject. Care and Feeding tells not just an American story, but several important ones, end quote, and is available where books are sold. Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. The notion that journalism is a noble pursuit is a fairly recent one, largely thanks to the Watergate investigations. But now, thanks to the internet, anyone can be a yellow journalist, and their lies can be circulated faster than ever. The murder of white South African farmers has become a favorite talking point of white supremacists around the world, who argued that these killings are proof that their race is on the verge of being exterminated, and offer up gory photos and YouTube footage to support this claim. What these conspiracy believers fail to mention is that, last year, approximately 20,000 people were murdered in South Africa, and the vast majority of them were Black. Only 62 victims were farmers. In the March issue, James Pogue travels to South Africa to investigate and meet some of the key propagators of this myth, and to understand the unresolved racial and economic inequalities that are perpetuating suffering there. I spoke with Pogue about his article and how white nationalist ideas so easily reach the mainstream. And as James mentions in our conversation, his fixer, Mopete, was attacked with acid, He doesn't have money to get to the doctor, so please consider giving to his GoFundMe. The link is in the show notes. Your article is exploring something that is definitely a result of the particular historical moment we're in. Um, Because in the past, South Africa has been held up as this model for its Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And there have been many Truth and Reconciliation Commissions following it. Uh, for countries that have experienced similar historical traumas. So what were the conditions that have led up to this current race war narrative, especially considering that many critics of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa felt that the white perpetrators got off easily, got off easy? Well, yeah. I mean, I think basically, like, there's two ways of looking at it. One is that it's the result of this very specific moment that we're in. And the other is sort of that, like, in fact, we're just living with the legacy of a kind of unfinished revolution that a lot of people expected to see finished at some point. Um, You know, and like, whether that was because there was messaging at the end of apartheid from the ANC, or if it was because they were more radical than the ANC government was willing to be. Um, In either case, there was a lot of anger that kind of just sort of dissipated in this happy moment of transitioning from apartheid to democracy. Um, And then now when you look at it specifically in terms of the moment that we're all living in, I would kind of say that like everywhere in the world is experiencing something that just happens to be maybe more extreme in South Africa, which is a sort of dissolution between... Um, the elites who have access to capital and sort of this transnational world of uh, capital flows and uh, elite spaces to move in and things like this. And then the vast majority of South Africans who look at that with increasing anger because they thought that the whole point of getting rid of apartheid was to abolish the concept of an entrenched elite. 
And that went hand in hand with the ANC's goals for you know, decades of the freedom struggle. And then as they transitioned into neoliberal democracy, that went away. People forgot about getting rid of the elites. And now that's coming back, I think. Right. And I mean, the, this moment um, that we're in, it seems there, it, it's sort of facilitated by globalization and things like the internet, where there's this sort of international turn to conspiracy where you can type anything in online and sort of find an example that proves your point. And that, and it is in a lot of spaces where there's this idea that the margins of society or those sort of disenfranchised by society are actually at the center and those are the people who are calling the shots, right? Yeah, and I mean, I think that's increasingly becoming very, very true in South Africa, as it is to some degree across the world. Like, I think in South Africa, you know, there's a, there's this sort of idea that the ANC core still represents some kind of broad consensus body politic in South Africa. I think a lot of people would now start to look at that as simply breaking down where you have the real political energy is between the poles of people who are in terms of the broad mass of black South Africans, very, very angry. They're angry about the fact that the perpetrators of apartheid weren't punished. They're angry about the fact that whites still hold the vast majority of the country's wealth and are still way better equipped in terms of employment figures, in terms of what they actually earn. And they look at this with, you know, I think some level of justifiable rage. And then on the other hand, you have whites who look at the rage and cry fear, which I think in some cases is justified. I think there is a lot of anger. And there are a lot of sort of, quote unquote, liberal moderates who increasingly feel very afraid. But then once you take that justifiable fear that something might erupt into violence or that some occasional farm murders are perpetrated by people who are motivated by racial animus, you can turn that narrative into something much bigger once it gets onto YouTube. And that's where you get this idea that like whites are facing genocidal massacre, that there's going to be an ethnic cleansing. And that's unfortunately what most people who follow this issue honestly believe. Right. And towards the end of your article, you say there are these two false choices for white identity, you know, where there's one of white supremacy, and then there's one of perpetual white self-loathing. And that's certainly not to say that, again, the grievances um, and the, the, the ruins of colonialism have, you know, should, there shouldn't be some sort of way to negotiate that. But neither choice is politically great and neither choice really provides a solution to moving forward or a true sort of redistribution of an in realignment of society mm-hmm. and i mean i think that there's i mean there's a lot of lot of ways to look at this and obviously a lot of the ways that people have come up to look at this issue have ended up basically resulting in fascism and like what's unfortunate in south africa is i think there was a very real willingness on the part of white people to say, hey, we have this power and this wealth and some of it has to be given away. And there was this moment, I think in 1994, where people understood like, hey, uh, there has to be some movement towards equality. But what they weren't forced into, and it's honestly, I don't think this is for the whites' own benefit. What they weren't forced into was giving up anything besides political equality, which of course is exactly what happened in the U.S., in, during the era of Reconstruction. Uh, you 
you were sort of given, you gave black people nominal political equality, but without any economic power to sort of entrench what those political gains were. And so they were immediately very quickly lost. Um, and I think what we are going to have to figure out is some kind of politics of whiteness that isn't constant apologizing, but also involves an understanding that being white has historically meant being a part of an economically elite subset of the world. And if you want to end resentment against whites, you have to change that basic reality. And so it involves, I think, I mean, something that goes into a much larger question, but like on a certain level, I think that leveling the playing field economically in its class sense will probably help white people in their moment of identity crisis right now. Yeah. And this is certainly not race doesn't matter or and only class mm -hmm. matters. This is a question exactly. of like this larger redistribution and uh, acknowledgement that power and capital are not are, are not actually finite. Like mm -hmm. you can actually do things differently right. than the way that they have been done. Right. Right. I mean, like and I talk about this a little bit in the piece and, you know, you know there's just this idea that 1994 was sort of the end of apartheid coincided with the heyday of an idea that basically like global markets were always going to keep growing and that that would raise all boats mm -hmm. and that like, you know, even things that logically just don't make sense. But like, we didn't really talk that much at that time about resource scarcity because people didn't really understand that, you know, like we wouldn't always just be able to come up with a quick technological fix to deal with a resource scarcity and that thus human growth and capital could always in perpetuity keep going. And I think what we're realizing at this moment is at least in terms of how wealth is distributed in that finite pie, people are not getting what they feel like their share is. And the, the pie is not increasing fast enough to actually build an equality that people feel like they can be a part of. And in South Africa, you couple that with a brutal, brutal racial history and, you know, a millions upon millions of people who exist in living memory of an actual slave state. And the resentment is going to be incredible. Like it's, it's in a way shocking to me that some greater sense of like organized violence hasn't actually broken out yet. Yeah, I get Well, I wanted to actually transition and talk a bit about how you met Simon Rush. Well, so actually, this is an interesting bit of backstory. I wrote a book, um, which my publisher would like me to say, is called Chosen Country. <laughs> but I, it was about um, Mormons in the West and the Bundy family and the standoffs that have happened there. Um, and one of the key figures in that uh in that book and also sort of in that scene because he had been Ammon Bundy's uh, bodyguard. Uh, he and I stayed in touch after the whole kind of those standoffs ended. And he started much to my discomfort because we had been friends. Uh, he started to really drift into kind of alt-right stuff in a way that I thought kind of mirrored a lot of how right-wing libertarians in America did under Trump, you know, where they went from mm. being like pro-gun to suddenly being like sharing, you know, Norse mythology memes and little, <laughs> like sort of alt-lighty yeah. kind of stuff that started to freak me mm -hmm. out. And then he started sending me videos of people saying that there was a white genocide in South Africa and that there was going to be this massive sort of revolution and whites who were going to be driven out of the country. And I was like, this is bullshit. But I got interested because I was sort of like, well, how is there so much media about this? And so if you go on YouTube, all you see is this stuff about white genocide. Um, and I found that I didn't really have the facts to argue with him. 
And I thought, well, forget it. Why don't I just call this Simon Rush guy who I keep seeing on YouTube and see if I can come visit him? So I did. And we had a WhatsApp conversation and he said, hey, come down, stay as long as you want. Uh, we'll go hunt Springbok, he offered to do. And um, yeah, he basically just invited me to see the preparations for this civil war. Wow. In your article, you're describing these um, these little snippets of life in South Africa. You know, there's just sort of this casual violence of just the media that people are exchanging that, you know, oh, here's a photo of somebody who was murdered. This is a racially based murder. And then also just in terms of like these kind of surreal scenes of these farms where, you know, they they have tried to redistribute them. And then that redistribution failed because there wasn't the proper capital, additional resources right. to kind of make it work. It's tough to give a panorama of the country, you know, in just a little bit. But it is a very strange place to be at this moment because it is it's not as violent as it's ever been. It's actually less violent than it was at the end of apartheid because there was so much chaos in the streets and fighting between the ANC and various other factions and things like that. But now the country really has descended into something that feels like everywhere you go, you're garrisoned in. Um, and where, I mean, I can't tell you how many friends I've met who just described having had a parent murdered, a sibling, a child. It's somewhere, um, I mean, for example, I was telling you earlier, uh, my fixer was attacked with acid today. Mm. And I mean, he didn't even sound surprised. He's very, very upset and he's very hurt and his face is burned. But he he just almost described it as like this sort of cost of being alive in South Africa at this time. Um, and then, again, it should be said, like the vast majority of this violence, the vast, vast, vast majority of this violence impacts black South Africans um, or colored South Africans. Uh, and it's only a very small snippet of it that sort of bled you know, that sort of blends into this uh, kind of rural farm violence that has made so much news. Um, but it is true, with that being said, that of the 62 or so farm murders that happened, there's a certain percentage that are really motivated by a certain level of deep-seated resentment uh, or just simple, like, not liking the white man. Uh, and so I mentioned in the piece that there was one moment uh, in the last uh, couple months where there was a farm murder um, after a month, I think, after someone had come to the farm and written Kill the Boer um, on the side of the house. Um, and Kill the Boer is a sort of, it's an old struggle song, but it's also a motto for kind of radical anti-white agitation in the country. And so there's this whole kind of combination of very, very legitimate fear of violence and also a kind of garrison mentality where anyone who can afford it now lives behind barbed wire, lives with guns, uh, hires private security groups. And so in the rural areas where mm. farms are very exposed, where it's hard to keep intruders off your land and things like that, you have this really kind of scary feudal structure developing where almost every farm that I visited, and I can't I don't know a percentage offhand, so I don't want to you know, get trapped into this. But every farm that I visited was in some way involved with a um, some kind of quasi-militia civil defense force that would involve like armed rapid response teams that were 
staffed by white guys who had, you know, tactical gear, big guns, in some cases, armored personnel carriers, all kinds of things like that, that they use. And then, you know, this naturally creates resentment because there's these shanty towns next to these farms where these guys go in and they'll do sweeps. Uh, they'll do, you know, they'll do citizens arrests and they will stop a lot of crime that seems to, you know, that probably otherwise the police wouldn't stop. But it is a slightly dystopian world in which the state can't reach this area and capital is sort of seeping in to fill the gaps. And who has capital? White people do. And so it breeds more resentment. Could you speak more on that dystopian note? Because again, it seems like there needs to be a certain amount of reckoning and acceptance that yes, as white people, white people need to give up some stuff, but doing so without the fear of, you know, something that is horrifically violent or, you know, uh, without, without, let's say without uh, physical force or without guns or without acid attacks. Right. And I mean, this is the great question that underlies a lot of this is that you know, what would have happened if white people in 1994 had accepted a different kind of economic structure for the country? Uh, what if there had been an economic revolution as well as a political one? And what would that have looked like? And would there be this resentment to this day? It's a totally unanswerable question. Um, or at least, I mean, it's just hard to speculate. The thing that I do feel when you say like dystopian world is, What's really, really alarming about South Africa is that it, or as an American being there, it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel entirely different than like how spaces, you know, I live on the West Coast, how certain cities in America are descending into this like grotesque level of inequality where, you know, in the Bay, people are just sleeping under bridges. Every single overpass is a homeless camp now. And it's this kind of scary window into what a, a future where the Gini coefficient is even higher, the level of inequality is even higher than here, you know, and where like that has bred a level of social breakdown that's just obviously nothing like anything in America, but it doesn't feel entirely different. And I found that very alarming. I found it like less a different world than like an echo of what our future may be. Yeah, no, I mean, Maybe that's why I was asking, <laughs> um, because I mean it is hard to. Again, we have gated communities in the U.S. Mm -hmm. We do have private security. We have private firefighters. Absolutely. There are there is an inordinate amount of wealth inequality in the U.S. However, mm -hmm. there are certain things that kind of smooth it over. Mm -hmm. But some of those things that kind of smooth it over that are like your phone, the internet, mm -hmm. cable, they help perpetuate an alternative narrative that is really dangerous and just mm -hmm. and fosters a completely different type of resentment, not at the elite elites, but the again, this idea that, you know, somebody who has less than you is actually the one reaping the benefits of this unequal system. And, you know, actually, it's, that's a funny point, I, which I am now going to cannibalize from a really good Baffler piece that I think was by Alex Perrine. Mm. But it, it was about how increasingly societies are able to give their most marginalized members like gadgets. And they're like, well, if you have access to a television, how poor can you be? You know, right. in South Africa, that I think is 
like a very real and strange permutation of how capitalism is working today because you have actually all of these people who live in shanty towns but have televisions and cell phones and so like their material needs still aren't being met but they're brought into a world where they can communicate and share rage they still can't necessarily know where they're going to put food on the table but they can have credit to use whatsapp and i think there's this again this sort of like misnomer uh, both in the united states and in you know increasingly in the third world that like if you can give people access to technology, if you can give people access to the wider world, education and things like that, that somehow their material needs ought to be met somehow and that they ought to be able to find some kind of level of economic security. And it's just not happening. I think South Africa is honestly flummoxed. Like I don't, I don't personally think that land reform is likely to be that successful or to fundamentally change the economic structure of the country. But the interesting thing is that no one else seems to have an idea of what would. And that's really scary to me. It seems like a folly on some level that, you know, one of the many ideas of colonizing Africa was to extract resources from the land and that farming is a form of that. Farming is absolutely necessary. However, the idea that you would just sort of perpetuate this system, that there sort of needs to be another path that could be taken economically or developed, but one that clearly isn't like, you know, teach everybody to code or some, some right, terrible exactly. bullshit like that. Well, so, and this isn't like a highly developed economic take, but I will say that, I mean, I began my career uh, as, in, you know, my first adult job was working in resources in Africa. Uh, I dropped out of college and I um, worked for a crew of people looking for gold and oil in the Sahara. And I mean, it doesn't take a very sophisticated person to realize that, I mean, and, and I wouldn't obviously be the first person to say this. I just mean, even as a 21-year-old who knew nothing about this history and had certainly never read colonial theory, uh, you could see very clearly why the French and the British and everybody else had been willing to leave Africa. It's because they actually still controlled all the resources. And that's still true to this day. And so there was this moment, I just remember thinking like, well, the only thing that you can do here is just take the mines. You have to just own the mines. You have to own the land. And until you do that, this whole resource curse, this whole pretend mystery of like, why do these countries that have oil resources stay poor? I mean, we know the reason for that. It's that they don't own the infrastructure. Right. Uh, it's not complicated. Um, and on that level, again, I mean, I'm a little pessimistic about what the land reform efforts would actually happen like would it actually produce in terms of benefits to people's lives, if only because it seems likely that a lot of corruption would go into the distribution process and a lot of people would get very rich and a lot of people would not really be able to run farms because they don't have experience or capital. But it's hard to argue with the premise because the premise is give poor people capital. And that's something that actually seems like it could work as opposed to teach people to code give people tax credits on jobs they're not even, you know, that they don't even have anymore because they don't have any economic security. Obviously, because the 2020 presidential election has already begun, unfortunately for everybody. You talk a little bit in your piece about how these narratives that pretty much only exist on YouTube or maybe through misreporting in sort of conventional outfits, outfits, how they sort of bubble up to the surface, you know, going from something like 
alt-light to alt-right, that sort of trajectory of following these these foregone conclusions in a certain direction and then never turning back from that. Obviously, because you have uh, experience with the Bundys and other sort of uh, people in the U.S. who have experienced this too, what, how would you... S- how would you characterize that process? Is there a way to do it besides letting YouTube police itself and sort of step back from recommending people Infowars or whatever they think is going to help? I mean, the short answer is actually no. I don't think that there is an answer to that. And I'll circle back to a more hopeful idea after that. But the reason I don't think that there is much of a kind of solution uh, in the near term is because the space between a whack job with 350 views on YouTube talking about the history of Rhodesia and how the world is going to turn into Rhodesia or something, the space between that and Fox News is just way, way narrower than the space between, say, Jacobin and MSNBC. They just, I mean, and actually that's not even a good example. I mean, just a fringe lefty anarchist person has no path towards MSNBC. Whereas a fringe YouTuber has just a much shorter distance to travel because the mainstream of what, you know, a great portion of this country, and in fact, the world now, that the world that identifies as sort of conservative or nationalist or whatever, you know, the closest organ to mainstream that any of these people are consuming, nine times out of 10, is Fox News. And... Mm-hmm. Just to give an example from the piece, I mean, the shortest version of how this narrative went from a wacky YouTuber to the mouth of the president of the United States is that this guy managed to sell a bunch of goats, use the money to come to America, meet literal Nazis, like actual just clear cut, total fringy white supremacists like Chris Cantwell and Nathan D'Amigo and just the most hardcore of the Nazi right in America. He did that for a few months. It blew up on YouTube and the diff and that quickly moved into this realm of things that the Trumpians watch, you know, from uh, Infowars to uh, Breitbart, obviously to um, Mike Cernovich and people like that with huge followings and including, you know, members of the Trump inner circle. And then all of a sudden the sort of more, quote unquote, mainstream pressure groups, uh, like in South Africa, this group called Efri Forum, they were forced to respond. um, And they would deny this, but at least Simon would claim that they initiated their own trip to America in response to his. I don't know if that's true, but it certainly transpired that they came quickly on his heels. They were on Fox News. And then all of a sudden, it's in the mouth of the president, and he's tweeting about it. And then it becomes this global media phenomenon. So that space is incredibly narrow and you're not really going to fix it without, I think, some kind of metaphorically speaking, bloody political warfare. Because like right now, these people are just in a zone where they feel like they're on the march. They have a lot of media outlets where they feel like they're being heard and where organs like Fox News give them a huge amount of credence. And so until you tackle that juggernaut sort of at the top of the pyramid, you're not going to get rid of the sort of fringy stuff because Fox News feels perfectly comfortable amplifying. And then what was the more hopeful take? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, the hopeful take is actually that 
I think there's a level on which um, the sort of newer breed of left-wing media has a lot of purchase in this, in this world. Um, and I just, again, I mean, it's a bit of a theme of the piece, but I think that what South Africa is facing right now is a confrontation between two radical fringes. And I think increasingly that's what's happening in the space of YouTube and things like that. For a long time, that wasn't really something that people on the left were in a position to really be doing. And I think that we haven't, there's a lot of just hearts and minds that were captured in this pre-Trumpian moment by these whack job idiots like Cernovich and things like that. And I think that that is increasingly becoming difficult, not because YouTube is regulating Alex Jones. I don't think that's really going to be the thing. I just think that there are more people who are aware of and willing to fight that fight than there ever have been before. And for obvious reasons, because they want to fight two years ago, you know? You know, in your article, you're discussing certain instances where pretty reputable news outlets, and I'm not talking about Fox News, uh, reputable news outlets have repeated these facts from or sort of frame things in a sensationalistic way that are coming directly from the Satelanders, from other sort of white supremacist groups in South Africa. Is there a way to report on this responsibly in mm -hmm. that and not sort of sensation and, you know, not to sensationalize and but also to show that in so much that we can ever provide an alternative to alternative facts. Um, is there a good way? Is there a responsible way to do that? Well, I think that there's, I think that there's a big question that the media has not figured out how to answer. And I, I, I mean, I am not sure that I, I mean, actually, no, I'm certain that I don't have an answer either, but I think the thing that people really, really struggle with is when they deal with an organization like AfriForum, uh, which is the sort of mainstream Afrikaner rights organization in South Africa that has been a major, major driver of this stuff. And AfriForum is very interesting because, for example, they recently sued uh, several South African newspapers and won judgments in a case where they said, hey, you said that we were saying that there was a white genocide, and we've never said that. They don't say that. They're very careful not to say that. But they amplify the idea that there's widespread racism against whites in South African society. Uh, and people, and so that becomes this thing that becomes very, very hard to deal with because it's like there is animus against whites in broad sections of South African society. But most people listening to this podcast or, you know, engaging in mainstream media today would be part of a consensus that would say it, you cannot be racist against whites. And the legacy, particularly of whites in South Africa, makes this whole narrative of you guys being persecuted totally laughable, right? Yes. <laughs> and so the problem here is that there's a lot of people out there who want to be able to hear what AfriForum is saying and agree with it because they're like, hell yeah, you can be racist against white people. You know, black people get all this stuff in America and blah, blah, blah. And they hem and haw and jaw and jaw. And they like that. And the liberal media doesn't really have a way of addressing that because the only response that's acceptable in the world now is to say quickly, like, there's no such thing as racism against whites. And then to kind of not be able to engage with the animus that does flow back and forth, right? And so what's unfortunate is that you have, on the one side, people who are just saying, hey, there's a white genocide. 
or hey, white people are a persecuted minority. And then you have on the other side, a liberal media that has not done a great job of engaging with those ideas because they simply say everything you say is untrue. And every forum has done a very good job of being rigorously, rigorously factual. So they don't inflate the farm murder numbers. They just say things like, hey, we feel the government's not doing anything about it. And then Western media parrots that and they say, hey, the South African government doesn't care about white farmers. That's not true. The South African government devotes a great deal of resources to preventing farm murders. They don't do a great job, but they do try. But the, all of this nuance gets lost and the right wingers win the victory because they say either, hey, there's a white genocide and no one challenges them, or they say something more nuanced and they get to turn to their supporters and say, the liberal media doesn't want to hear us. And they just become more and more strong in their little echo chamber. Yeah. It's a bad, yeah, this is, um, like you said, I do definitely, like reading this, I was just like, this is not too far from where we're headed. Um, and it's hard not to feel that way. Right. I mean, they play the exact trick that, you know, Trumpians and sort of alt-lighters in America do, which is by, you know, sort of making these prov- provocations about, you know, people persecuting whites and, you know, making, for example, a huge deal of the Jesse Smollett thing. You know, people want, like, th- there's a set of people out there who want to show that whites are being targeted or persecuted or made fun of and that that somehow people get away with this. And that echo chamber, you know, I just don't, this goes back to your earlier question about like, is whiteness always something that the politics has to just be apologizing for? And unfortunately, like the media has not quite figured out how to connect with people who are, have that rage about being told to apologize. I will end it there, but thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced and edited by Violet Luca. The music is cut and shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save.